Thanks for downloading this Centre for the History of Medicine in Ireland podcast. For more information on the centre, go to ucd.ie forward slash history forward slash chomi. In this episode, a recording from the medical training, student experience and the transmission of knowledge circa 1800 to 2014 symposium, which took place in the UCD Humanities Institute in October 2014. The symposium was organised by Laura Kelly of University College Dublin and was generously supported by the Irish Research Council and the Wellcome Trust. Podcasting was by Real Smart Media. In this episode, a recording from Panel 1, Medical Training, Surgery and Obstetrics. The paper, Teaching Compassion, Surgical Education and the Inculcation of Moral Values in Early 19th Century Britain, was given by Michael Brown of Roehampton University. So in 1850, Frederick Ski, I think that's how it's pronounced, I've heard variants of it, Eski, Skay, I'm in a wakely wackly situation, the nightmare that I've been living for the past <laughs> 20 years. Um, I'm going to call him Ski for the purpose of this. In 1850, Frederick Ski, lecturer in anatomy at St. Bartholomew's Hospital Medical School, published a 700-page book entitled Operative Surgery. One of the most comprehensive contemporary guides to the art of surgery, it offered everything on advice from the basic way to hold a knife to the performance of complex operations and soon became, in the words of his DMB biographer, a standard student text. Now, Ski's book was not limited to practical instruction. Quote, to write a work on operative surgery, which would consist merely of, merely of mechanical rules for the performance of an amputation, would be to leave the work more than half unfinished, simply because the knowledge which determines the necessity of the undertaking is far more valuable than that which is required to qualify a surgeon for its performance. The one qualification involves both the moral feeling and intellect of the surgeon, the other demands the exercise of his physical functions only. This moral feeling, as Ski called, called it, um, is more involved in the establishment of a just reputation than the world imagines. This was because the operating surgeon was not a mechanic, but the agent through whose instrumentality is carried into action the highest principles of scientific medicine. He wields a power more grand and at the same time more terrible to humanity than any other branch of our profession. Life and death hang suspended on his effort. Health, recovery, deformity and death are the issues of his hand. For Ski, the principal moral imperative of the operative surgeon, and that which he sought to inculcate into his readers, was restraint. There was, he claimed, no more seductive branch of medicine than surgery. Its brilliancy, its eclat, its critical influence on disease, all attached to it an interest in the minds of the student of medicine, he claimed. This glamour was, however, both misleading and dangerous. I have endeavoured, he suggested, as an English metropolitan surgeon, to carry into execution at least one primary object, viz. to strip the science of operative surgery of a false glare, mistaken by the ignorant for the brightness of real excellence, um, to check the spirit of reckless experiment, and to repress rather than encourage um, the resort to the knife as a remedial agent. The student, he argued, should be wary of anyone considered a brilliant operator, and should resist trying to cultivate such a reputation themselves. Instead, they should focus on developing their moral and intellectual faculties so when the monstrous or the momentous decision to operate was finally theirs to make, they would inevitably uh, make the right decision. Now, at the heart of this moral framework lay sympathy, the capacity to see one's patients as more than just a professional stepping stone, but as a human being with fears, desires and aspirations. Not only was such a compassionate countenance necessary for astute judgment, he claimed, it also served to improve the likelihood of a positive outcome. It was rare, Ski wrote, in the case of a man about to undergo an operation, that, quote, sympathy does not tell beneficially upon his mind. A peculiar kindness, and in the example of a female or a child, even of a tenderness of manner, 
that gets a confidence which, without betraying weakness or uncertainty, fortifies the patient's mind and reconciles it to the effort. Now, operative surgery was published four years after the first use of ether as an anaesthetic agent, and a mere two years after James Young Simpson's first use of chloroform. Moreover, by the time of its publication, Ski was a 52-year-old man whose career had been forged in the 1820s and who'd been a student in the 1810s. Thus, while it stood on the cusp of a brave new world of pain-free operations, Ski's book was grounded in the sensibilities of an earlier age, before surgery had been robbed of its most potent terrors. Now, when discussing the education of surgeons, particularly in the pre-anesthetic era, historians have tended to emphasise the role of anatomical dissection in shaping a culture of dispassion and emotional detachment. The routine hands-on dissection of cadavers, it has been suggested, served to inure surgical pupils to the horrors of cutting and even potentially dismembering a living, breathing, writhing patient. In her book, With Words and Knives, Learning Medical Dispassion in Early Modern England, Linda Payne ascribes particular importance to the teaching of the Hunter brothers, or John and William, the latter's well-known refrain being that dissection, quote, familiarises the heart with a sort of necessary inhumanity, the use of cutting instruments upon our fellow creatures. Meanwhile, in the context of 19th century America, as we've just heard, historians such as Michael Sapol, John Harley Warner and James Edmondson have demonstrated how anatomical dissection played a key role in shaping the shaping of medical identities, functioning as a marker of social and professional distinction. However, despite the unarguable significance of anatomical dissection as a key rite of passage for students, what I hope to demonstrate today is that dispassion was not the only nor even the preeminent emotional register of early 19th century surgical education, nor indeed was the dissection room the only space for surgical training. Given the importance of anatomical dissection to what Ozai Temkin has called the surgical point of view and to the radical restructuring of medical thought in the late 18th and early 19th centuries, the dissection room has tended to overshadow the lecture theatre in accounts of medical and surgical education. And yet the lecture performed a vital role in medical and surgical training, as indeed it does today. Although far from immune to student rowdiness, the lecture theatre provided a somewhat more disciplined pedagogic space one in which a different set of values from those developed in the arena of the dissection room might be inculcated. As we shall see, early 19th century surgical lecturers often adopted a high moral tone, one which stressed the importance of compassion and sympathy. Drawing upon the cultures of sensibility, they crafted an image of the surgeon that resonated with contemporary ideals and which presented a vision of surgery as an improved, scientific and fundamentally civilised practice. So first of all, the surgical lecture... From the Middle Ages up to around the end of the 18th century, the vast majority of surgeons were trained by means of apprenticeship. Article to a master surgeon at a young age, the apprentice would have spent around seven years in an, as an indentured assistant living in his master's household, albeit on its peripheries, um, and lending the mastery of mysteries of the craft through direct observation and participation. By the later 18th century, however, with the growth of hospital medical schools and private anatomical teaching, uh, particularly in the medical metropolises of, uh, metropolises of London and Edinburgh, it became increasingly common for apprentices to supplement their practical training with more theoretical and anatomical forms of study. Indeed, between the demise of the Guild of Barber Surgeons in 1745 and the establishment of the Royal College of Surgeons in 1800, apprenticeships with their roots in trade became increasingly less fashionable, and many aspirant surgeons chose more commercialised forms of education. For those with money and connections, this could involve a full pupillage, one which gave privileged access to a lecturer and his patients. Meanwhile, those with fewer resources could pay for individual lectures as well as for access to cadavers. In 1815, these arrangements were placed on a more formal footing. In an attempt to regulate the practice of surgeon apothecaries, or general practitioners as they were increasingly known, the government passed the Anatomy Act, so the Apothecaries Act. 
This made six months' attendance at a local hospital, a London hospital, or a year's attendance at a provincial hospital or dispensary. Experience of dissection and the completion of lecture courses in anatomy, midwifery, chemistry, and the theory and practice of medicine, a mandatory requirement for the conjoint qualifications of licentiate of the Society of Apothecaries and member of the Royal College of Surgeons. So the lecture really is kind of forms a fundamental part of, of surgical education. Now, surgical lectures generally provided an overview of the field from the particular diseases and injuries that a practitioner might encounter to the kinds of operations and procedures he would be called upon to perform. As Peter Stanley has observed, there was little consistency in either the content or the style of delivery, and each lecturer tended to teach their idiosyncratic syllabus. Indeed, the character of the lecturer was a critical component of the whole experience. Some struggled to hold the attention of their audience, while more charismatic speakers, such as Astley Cooper, lecturer and surgeon at the United Hospitals of Guys and St Thomas's, would reputably arrive with his students um, um, uh, ready thronging the stairs, waiting for his arrival, and would begin every lecture with the frame, gentlemen. His audience sitting in total silence, except, as John Flynn South noted, for the subdued pen-scratching of the note-takers. Now, despite the idiosyncrasy of the syllabus, surgical lectures from this period generally shared one particular structural characteristic – as Everard Home announced to his students at the Great Windmill Anatomy uh, uh, Street, the Great Windmill Street Anatomy School in 1811, you can see an image of it uh, for later from the 1830s. Quote, it is usual to begin a course of lectures. So it is usual in beginning a course of lectures, whether on medicine or surgery, to read an introductory lecture. The lectures, of course, to which uh, Jonathan referred in his questions, in which is given a short history of the art, its excellencies pointed out, and the sources from, the sh- from which the teacher derived his knowledge detailed. It is useful for beginners in any art or science to be excited by perseverance, to perseverance by having a strong impression made on their minds of the utility of those pursuits in which they are about to engage. These introductory lectures provide, an, provide an invaluable insight into the cultures and ideologies of contemporary surgery. As Holmes' words suggest, they are often intended as a laudatory oration praising the noble virtues of the surgical art. Almost without fail, they, they painted an image of surgery as a newly scientific pursuit which had transcended an historic intellectual inferiority and indeed social inferiority and divested itself of its long-standing associations with trade, notably butchery. Home again. In the earlier times of physic, the art of surgery was low and confined to the performance of manual operations, which were determined by the physician. As the physicians possessed no accurate knowledge of the structure of the human body, it was impossible that the art could be advanced under their direction. Surgery could not be improved till the practitioners had become acquainted with the different parts of the body their use and connection with one another. With the progress of anatomical knowledge is to be traced the advancement of surgery. Now, if anatomy had laid the foundations of scientific surgery, then its practitioners were, un- its, its, its kind of pioneers were undoubtedly the Hunter brothers, William and John, the latter, of course, having been Holmes' own brother-in-law and uh, former teacher. It was, Holmes suggested, the particular privilege of the students present at the Windmill Street School that they should be receiving instruction in the very building that William had established and from a lecturer who had himself been fortunate enough to be educated by these towering icons of surgery and anatomy. Now, while Holmes may have been a particularly, had a particularly close personal connection to it, this narrative of the Hunter brothers and their role in the rebirth of surgery as a scientific practice was virtually ubiquitous in the period and indeed throughout much of the 19th century. However, it wasn't simply surgeons' knowledge that had improved, according to Holm, it was also their manner and their character. As he claimed, the operations in surgery have in general been considered as acts of cruelty, and surgeons had been accused of want of humanity. This must have arisen from the dislike that which prevails against the examination of dead bodies. The circumstances of their being present so frequently at scenes of distress prevents them from receiving the same shock which others do, and the harshness of manner and the want of temper of some is another cause why this reflection has been applied to the profession at large. 
Other lecturers echoed home sentiments. In the past, they confessed, surgery was often cruel, in large part because it was undertaken too readily. In an age of relative ignorance, they suggested, surgeons were too apt to resort to the knife. Now, however, with their vastly improved knowledge of anatomy and physiology, surgeons were more inclined to trust the healing powers of nature, or at least to know when intervention was likely to cause patients unnecessary suffering. It was a lesson, they suggested, that surgeons had best learn early. As Holmes said of that most emotionally affecting of operations, the amputation of a cancerous female breast, this, quote, is one of those which a young surgeon readily performs when the parts appear within the reach of the knife, but the more experience the surgeon acquires in this, the more reluctant he will be to perform it in, from seeing too many instances of its failure and its, its recurrence a short period after the operation. Ashley Cooper likewise argued against an excessive enthusiasm for operations, regaling his students with the cautionary tale of a pupil who, in his desire to gain more experience, offered to pay one of the hospital's young servant boys so that he might amputate his ulcerated leg, which he did in private residence, not in the hospital. After he had cut through the muscle and bone, his assistant became alarmed at the flow of blood and over-tightened the tourniquet, breaking the clasp. A great hemorrhaging followed from the um, um, artery, and the young pupil reportedly threw down his knife, jumped about, and would have let the young boy bleed to death had not another man who was present taken the key from the door and compressed the artery in the groin. Now, operative surgery required restraint, that it also demanded an almost feminised dexterity and lightness of touch. The early 19th century saw the development of a counterintuitively gendered language to describe the praxial dimensions of this most masculine of occupations, According to Cooper, the ideal surgical operator should have an eagle's eye, a lion's heart, and a lady's hand. Gentleness. Gentleness, he maintained, is essential to success and indicates humanity, whereas violence, on the contrary, is shocking and tends not a little to the want of success in operations, in operations in general. Too often, he alleged, students were apt to value speed over ultimate success and to sacrifice the patient's safety to their own desire to appear quick and capable. Cooper was not alone in expressing his distrust of surgical display and performance. Indeed, one of the most common motifs of such introductory lectures was the contrast they drew between an artificial affectation of skill and a plain, honest sensibility. As James Wardrop told his students at the Aldersgate Medical Street School in the early 1830s, some of you may have heard of instances where surgeons, in other respects, deservedly eminent have attempted a kind of theatrical effect in performing operations for no other purpose than giving bystanders a false impression of their dexterity, coolness and presence of mind. That affectation of dexterity or of doing operations quickly is but a pitiful ambition in those who use it. But you will invariably observe that none except those who are deficient in moral courage find it necessary to resort to such conduct and that a man who feels himself equal to the task he undertakes proceeds deliberately and calmly, steadily bearing in mind the grand object, relief to the patient. According to Wardrop, the truly capable surgeon was thus also a sensitive, sensible surgeon, one who subordinated selfish ambition to a selfless regard for his patient's well-being. At its most highly developed, this moral and intellectual acuity evolved a profoundly intersubjective emotional transportation, Thus, Frederick Ski informed his readers that a man is disqualified from the operations of surgery who cannot divest his mind in the sense of the sense of all personal advantage accruing to him from the performance of an, or an operation, who cannot, in imagination, place himself in the position of the patient and reflect on the case in all its bearings and calculate the result as though his own personal health were directly involved. 
Sympathy and compassion were therefore cardinal virtues for the new model surge in the Romantic era. However, the emotional balance of the operative surgeon required careful calibration. Honest, heartfelt sensibility was one thing, excessive and crippling sentimentality quite another. Thus, while few, if any, lecturers condoned an active dispassion or detachment, a number such as Everard Home warned against emotional incontinence. An excess of sensibility, he claimed, is of no use and takes away the power of giving relief. A mother, when the house is on fire, will carry her infant through the flames, or she may hold the infant to have an operation performed with great firmness and resolution, and afterwards, when it is over, faint away. During an operation, while he was acting for the relief of another, the surgeon is putting restraint on his own feelings. He does not feel the momentous distress he occasions, and as there is nothing in surgery which can, which can soften an unfeeling man, so there is nothing to diminish his benevolence or humanity. Every act which he performs is to relieve distress, to remove temporal evils and preserve life. For the student of operative surgery, a highly attuned emotional sensibility not only allowed him to make better decisions, it also enabled him to exercise a degree of moral authority over his patient. In his lectures to the Great Windmill Street School in the 1820s, Benjamin Brodie claimed that those beings on whom you are destined to practice are endowed with a precipient thinking mind. And he suggested that this mind was liable to become distracted and irritable under the influence of anxiety and fear. It was the task of the surgeon, therefore, to develop such a command of their own emotions that they could effectively read and regulate the emotional states of others, exerting a soothing and calming influence over those about to undergo a potentially terrifying ordeal. For surgeons of the early 19th century, such understandings of emotional intersubjectivity were not merely metaphorical. As well as cultural phenomena and philosophical concepts, sympathy and sensibility were physiological realities. Emotional states could determine physical outcomes, and thus James Wardrop recommended against operating on anyone with an excessively nervous temperament. It was especially important, he suggested, for students to determine whether their patient entertained a temporary fear of the operation itself, what he called a fear of the knife, or whether they were so despondent as to be convinced of the inevitability of their death. The former, he suggested, could be managed. The latter was almost always a self-fulfilling prophecy. Indeed, so sensitive was the body of the patient to the emotional demands of pre-anesthetic surgery that even the most minor of upsets could have potentially catastrophic uh, results. Ashley Cooper was particularly concerned that students used the right kind of language with patients and gave the example of a particularly insensitive pupil who, on being introduced to a man about to undergo an operation for popliteal aneurysm, asked, Well, my man, where do you come from? From Cornwall, sir, came the reply. Ah, the student responded, you will never see Cornwall anymore. <laughs> Thankfully, in this case, the patient's resolve remained unshakable, even in the face of such an egregious bedside manner, and he was discharged the following day. As well as language, um, surgical lecturers also sent caution students to be aware of the emotional impact of uh, other matters, such as their clothing and the arrangement of the operating theatre. Like Cooper and other contemporaries, Wardrop advised that any instruments necessary for an operation should be put out of sight of the patient until he was ready to proceed. Likewise, there was, quote, nothing that the surgeon should so much avoid as by his dress to impress the patient with the idea that the operation will be attended with much bloodshed. A dark set of trousers and shirt he maintained were infinitely preferable to a full-length apron. Now, what I've sought to demonstrate in this paper is that if we look to the lecture theatre, we are liable to gain a more nuanced and complex understanding of surgical education in the first half of the 19th century. As opposed to the potentially transgressive and irreverent cultures of the dissection room with its jokes, pranks, and um, encounters with the criminal underworld, much which we've already heard about in the US context anyways, surgical lecturers sought to inculcate a higher set of moral values into their students. 
As we have seen, men like Ashley Cooper, James Wardrop and Everard Holm were particularly concerned to stress the importance of a sympathetic and compassionate engagement with the patients. Now, to what extent these values were adopted by the students and informed their practice is, of course, almost impossible to establish. What is clear, however, is that they played a key role in the discursive and imaginative shaping of early 19th century surgical identity. The period from 1800 to 1850 witnessed a remarkable increase in the cultural and symbolic capital of surgery. From relatively low-status practitioners associated with the butcher's trade, mid-19th century surgeons developed into remarkably self-confident practitioners on the cusp of displacing physicians from the top of the medical hierarchy. That this process was already well underway before the study, the, the advent of anaesthesia, suggests that this rise in status had less to do with scientific breakthroughs than with self-presentation and social performance. By promoting the values of sympathy and compassion, surgical luminaries were appealing to a culturally resonant set of values centred on late enlightenment and romantic ideals of sensibility. Contrasting social affectation with honest, heartfelt emotion, they articulated a culturally sensitive vision of surgical identity which not only had a broad popular appeal, but which, just as importantly, and this is the subject for another paper, contrasted with the classic image of physicians as a fashionable elite concerned more with the acquisitive and performative dimensions of social prestige. The surgeon, though he may have come from a more humble background than the physician, was then no less of a gentleman. Indeed, in terms of the cultures of sensibility, he may even have been more so. That's me.